Well, welcome to our gathering. I'm excited to announce that uh, we are going to begin a study, uh, line-by-line study of the Gospel of John today. So keep your Bibles at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That will be our starting text. A couple of months ago, I began to ponder where we might go after uh, the book of Daniel and uh, I just, you know, was all over the place. Yes, I spent time in prayer. Yes, I spent time reading the Bible and, and maybe trying to find, uh, I don't know, the, saying I was trying to find the right book makes it sound like there are books in the Bible that aren't right. So it's just a weird thing when you're trying to seek the Lord for wisdom on, on, on where to go next. And um, I thought maybe one of the epistles, that would be one of the small letters in the New Testament, um, and, you know, I, I thought maybe 1 Corinthians. So I, I read through 1 Corinthians pretty quickly and kind of charted out. Then I took a couple hours to chart out the subjects. And, you know, I just, just felt like the first four chapters are about church unity. And that's a very, very important subject. And I'm sure that if we exposited, we'd find where we're lacking in church unity. But it just didn't click for me. It's like, well, yeah, that's great subject matter. It's, it's, and it's something that the church needs to hear. I don't know if that's what we need to hear right now. Um, and maybe that was just me saying, maybe that's not what I want to focus on right now. I don't know. It's just a weird thing when you're trying to find what book to teach through. Um, then I, I just kept thinking about a gospel, and I think I mentioned to the elders a while ago, maybe a gospel and... Uh, so I began to read the Gospels, and just I thought, well, if I read maybe the first two or three chapters of each Gospel, then you know, God will lead me in that way. And um, I read the first few chapters of each of the Synoptic Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you know, nothing was really clicking there. I thought, well, what's wrong with me? Um, and then I remembered that I'd already taught, I've already taught through the book of Mark doesn't necessarily mean that I'll never teach through it again. I'm sure if I did, I'd probably come up with, you know, other things to say. Um, And I've taught through part of Matthew up into the Beatitudes, and I just thought, well, it's just, what's wrong? These are the Gospels. I should be good. And it just didn't really click. And then when I opened John's Gospel which to me is probably the most intimidating one because it's, it's a spiritual gospel. It's a little different. Um, it's not a synoptic. It's, it, doesn't, um, it has components in it that you see in the other gospels, but it, it's not the same or similar to the other ones. And that's what synoptic basically means. It means similar. Um, it's different. And um, it's, it's um, spiritual. Not that the others aren't, but it has more of a spiritual emphasis on it. Uh, the first chapter is probably uh, one of the most interesting uh, chapters, I think, in all of the Bible, and I've probably wrestled with it uh, quite a bit throughout my faith. And, but I started reading it, and it was like, wow, man, I don't know why, but for some reason it just really got a hold of me. And uh, so I began to pray, you know, Lord, is this the book you want me to teach? And his answer to me was, I want you to preach the whole counsel of my will. <laughs> Lord, is this the book you want me to teach? I don't have a preference over any of my books. It's all my word. That was what kept coming to mind, right? 
And, you know, I was reminded of 2 Timothy 3.16, because this is truly how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word. If you hear something outside of that, you better be careful. Uh, But I remembered what that particular passage says. It says, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I realized it's not a matter of what book do you want me to go through, Lord, because He truly desires that we study His Word entirely that we would spend our lifetime on earth, on this side of glory, examining as much scripture as possible. So it's not a matter of, I just think that the gospel of John grabbed a hold of me and I grabbed back. That's what happened. Call me selfish. Call me weird. It's not like God said, yeah, that's the one. I just thought, man, I don't know what it is about these first 14 verses. The first 14 verses, I was like, this is where I got to be. I want to know what this means. And I want to be able to share it with your people at RHC, Lord. So that's how I came to the conclusion. So that's where we'll be for 14 years. Um, I have no idea how long, and I don't care. You know, I don't look at it and chart out every single thing. I just can't get that far. I can't get past the verses that I'm looking at. I read a little farther ahead, and that's about it, man, just so I can maintain the context. Let me pray before I give you an introduction to the book. I think it's befitting to give you some background to the book. Lord, we do appreciate this privilege that we have here in the States to come together each Sunday and to study your word and to sing your word, to fellowship, to pray, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Ah, man, it's just amazing. What an amazing privilege it is, not only to be your sons and daughters, but to have the church and the fellowship and these gatherings. And so we're so thankful, Lord, for this. Um, I'd have to say, Lord, that if it weren't for this church and how you have orchestrated and ordained things, I'm not sure where I'd be. Um, I just don't see how any Christian can go rogue and not be a part of local church. I know that I would be uh, a disaster if I didn't have my brothers and sisters and the accountability and the love and the encouragement. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that we would not take this for granted, that it would not become mundane or just something that we do, but that we would truly cherish what you've done and given us in gathering together. I truly believe you did it for us. It really is. I know it's for you. I know that's why we come, but you've done it for us too because it's, it's so beneficial to us. It's how you bless us, one of the ways. And so, but Lord, right now, I pray that you would be blessed, that your name would be exalted, that your people would worship you during this time of teaching, that they would hear your voice not fill. So teach us today, Lord. Humble us. Sanctify us. Make us a little bit more like Christ. If there be any man or woman in this room who has yet to come to know you, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give them new life. And don't leave us out of the equation, Lord, your people. We need to be built up and encouraged and equipped for the ministry of the gospel. And so... Do all that you aim to do this morning, Lord. We surrender to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, introduction to the gospel according to John. A couple of things that I want to cover, author and date, that would be A, and this is directly from MacArthur's commentary. Not everything in this sermon is from him, but this little section is, so I'll just read it to you, and I quote, although the author's name does not appear in the gospel, speaking of John, early church tradition strongly and consistently identified him as the Apostle John. The early church father, Irenaeus, was a disciple of Polycarp, that's an interesting name, who was a disciple of the Apostle of John, and he testified to Polycarp's authority that John wrote the gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia Minor when he was advanced in age. Subsequent to Irenaeus, all the church fathers, these are early church leaders, after the, apostol- after the apostles, after the apostolic age, all the church fathers assumed John to be the gospel's author. Clement of Alexandria wrote that John, aware of the facts set forth in the other gospels and being moved by the Holy Spirit, composed a, quote, spiritual gospel, unquote. It's an interesting phrase, right? Spiritual gospel. Reinforcing early church tradition are significant internal characteristics of the gospel. While the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, synoptic means similar, a similar point of view, uh, while these synoptic gospels identify the apostle John by name about 20 times, he is not directly mentioned by name in the gospel of John. Instead, the author prefers to identify himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You've heard that phrase, right? Every time I I read it, I cringe. Like, you're the only guy in the whole universe he loved. Well, that's not what he meant. It's an interesting thing. He refers to himself. The author does that pretty consistently here. And, And it really reflects his humility and celebrates his relation to his Lord Jesus. John and James, his older brother, were known as the sons of Zebedee, and Jesus gave them the name Sons of Thunder. John was an apostle and one of the three most intimate associates of Jesus, along with Peter and James, being an eyewitness to and participants in Jesus' earthly ministry. After Christ's ascension, John became a pillar in the Jerusalem church, Galatians 2.9. He ministered with Peter until he went to Ephesus from where he wrote this gospel and from where the Romans exiled him to Patmos, the island of Patmos, Revelation 1.9. Besides the gospel that bears his name, John also authored three epistles, right? First, second, and third John, as well as the book of Revelation. Because the writings of some church fathers indicate that John was actively writing in his old age and that he was already aware of the synoptic gospels, the other ones, many date this gospel sometime after their composition, but prior to John's writing of his epistles and Revelation. The traditionally held belief is that John wrote his gospel between 80 and 90 A.D., roughly 50 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. That's the author and date. John basically wrote it probably around 85 A.D. That's what tradition says. And another important point here would be B, the purpose of the the gospel according to John, right? What is its purpose? Purpose, because Scripture is written with a purpose, 
There is a purpose for it. We know that the overwhelming and overarching purpose is the glory of God, but there is a purpose. Uh, Like the gospel according to Luke. How many of you have read the gospel according to Luke? That is an amazing, that's probably the most comprehensive one. It just covers everything, right? Like the gospel according to Luke, John's gospel contains a precise statement regarding the author's purpose. Okay, so in the book of John, there is a statement that expresses the main purpose for the gospel itself. In chapter 20, verse 31, John wrote, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This statement shows that John's gospel has a twofold purpose. First, it is evangelistic. It says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, and then have life in His name. These refers to Jesus' miracles and teachings. John wrote them down so that his readers or hearers might believe and experience life or salvation. The word believe occurs about 100 times in the Gospel of John. 100 times. Whereas in the synoptics, altogether 50 times. So the word believe appears over and over and over in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read this other little section to you real quick. And this is just a great little introduction in my regular old ESV giant print Bible that I thought I would never need. And I used to make fun of people that had these giant text Bibles. I was like, ha ha, his eyes are terrible. Ha 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 ha. Now I'm like... Now I have to have like, now I have to hold it back here. It's like Hubble. Now this is a great little introduction. Listen to what this simple little ESV Bible says. It says, the gospel of John was written to persuade people to believe in Jesus. The opening verses declare that Jesus is God, stressing his unique relationship with the Lord or with God the Father. Pardon me, with God the Father. The book focuses on seven of Jesus' signs, miracles, to show His divinity. Jesus called people to believe in Him, promising eternal life. He proved He could give life, eternal life, by raising Lazarus, chapter 11, and by His own death and resurrection. It's amazing. Now, I like what um, MacArthur wrote about it, and he, he picks up on this theme of evangelism as well. He wrote... John composed his gospel to provide reasons for saving faith in his readers and, as a result, to assure them that they would receive the divine gift of eternal life. So, the first purpose of John's gospel is evangelism. And what is evangelism? It's telling people about the person and work of Jesus so that they might believe and experience life in His name. By the way... Believe is the title of this series, okay? hundred times in there, that's one of the strongest emphases in the book. I thought, well, that's a great title for it. And it says, believe the gospel of according to John, but I'd say believe all of Scripture. Uh, that's the title. Second, okay, here's the second purpose. John's gospel is, and I think this is probably one of my favorite subjects, it is apologetic 
Apologetic basically means to give a defense. It means to defend the claims of Scripture, the truth claims of Scripture. Now we go back to John's statement in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. This awesome little verse, I mean, it's just an incredible little verse, it contains three non-negotiable doctrines that John sets out to defend in his gospel. Okay, these are going to come back over and over, and he's going to defend them over and over. Why? Because they were under attack in his day, just as they have been ever since. And I'm going to identify them for you. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. I hate to break it to you, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. And you think, well, that's silly. Who believes that? A lot of people probably believe that. Literally. Well, that's his last name, right? No, it's not his last name. In Greek, Christ means anointed or chosen one. The Hebrew equivalent is a word we're all familiar with, Messiah. Okay? Jesus is the Father's anointed or chosen one or Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, we are in effect saying Jesus, the Father's anointed Messiah. That's what Christ means. So Christ is a reference to His divine anointing and Messiahship. John works to establish and defend His Christness, His Messiahship, throughout His gospel. So that's one way that is apologetic. Number two, Jesus is the Son of God. This is another doctrine that has to stand. It, it, we can't, it's solid, it's rock solid. And it, when we say Son of God, what are we actually referring to? When we refer to Jesus as the Son of God, we are referring to the deity of Christ. Arianism denies the deity of Christ. It says Jesus merely came from God and is not God. Jehovah's Witnessism and Mormonism are modern or postmodern day expressions of this old ancient heresy. But a denial of His deity is a denial of the Father's testimony about Jesus. Remember what the Father said at Jesus' baptism? This is my Son. These four words affirm two things, the divine nature of Christ and the divine origin, where He came from. John works to establish and defend the deity of Christ throughout his gospel, especially in our text in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Three, life in his name. What is John referring to here? He is referring to salvation or what the Bible often calls life or eternal life in Jesus' name. In Acts 4.12, we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the doctrine of Christ alone. The Reformers called it solus Christus, Christ alone in Latin. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 14, verse 6. This is one of my favorite verses. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus made it clear that He is the only one who can give us life, which means to enjoy the Father's presence in heaven forever and ever. That's what salvation really is. Our inheritance is God. 
John knew the meaning of solus Christus long before Martin Luther or any of the other reformers understood that. This is a doctrine that's in Scripture. It's been there for a long time. And this is why John works to establish, not only establish, but defend the Christ alone doctrine throughout his gospel. A word of caution. If we deny that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, or that Jesus is God, deity, or that Jesus alone provides salvation, we shall not experience life. You, can, you deny any of those, you're done. You've just forsaken the gospel. A denial of any of these doctrines is tantamount to a denial of Christ himself. But these cults, and we're familiar with them, keep telling people, if you want to have Jesus and enjoy his salvation and blessings, you've got to adopt our views and deny the false teachings of the church, capital C. That's right, they want us to deny the clear teachings of Scripture and about 2,000 years of orthodoxy. And I think that this orthodoxy predates even the church age. Christ is all throughout the Old Testament. We know who He is from the Old Testament. But the New Testament certainly elucidates the truth about Him much better. Should we be offended by their message, the message of the Mormons, the message of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Apostle Paul was offended by the message of the Judaizers who taught that you can't be a true Christian unless you're circumcised. Not a very positive and encouraging message for uncircumcised men. Kind of ridiculous. It's Jesus plus this. Jesus himself was offended by the message of the scribes and the Pharisees, that weird blend of faith and works. Have you ever read the seven woes? In Matthew 23, you should. Well, Jesus is just so kind and so gentle, and he would just never say anything in a, in a mean-spirited way. And I would say, no, he doesn't say things in a mean-spirited way, but that's not to say that he didn't say harsh things because the seven woes are about as harsh as you can get. They are seven anathemas, curses upon these people. But that's just not the Jesus I know. It is the Jesus you don't know. False gospels should offend Christians big time. But how should we respond to those who perpetuate false gospels? Pray for them. Correct them. Expose them. It's not wrong to expose. Pray, correct, expose. Amen? Just a little side thing there. Because we're dealing with important subject matter that, that people are playing fast and loose with, and it's not right. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John begins his gospel with several statements that affirm the deity of Christ. Okay, so now we're going to get into the text. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Are you ready? So that's the introduction. I kept it simple and short. Now let's just get into the text, because that's where I'd rather be. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Stop right there. Let's 
break these two verses down. They're extraordinary. The first phrase, in the beginning. What does this remind us of? How about the first three words of the Bible in Genesis 1.1? What does it say? In the beginning. And then we read about the creation account, right? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, etc., etc. John begins by citing the first three words of Genesis. Why? Because he wants us to go back to the starting point, to the beginning of time, to the point of creation. That's why he takes us back. MacArthur put it like this, John used the phrase in an absolute sense to refer to the beginning of time, space, material universe. So John is just taking us back to the very beginning and he's keeping us there. Go back to the creation account and think in terms of what was playing out there, okay? Next phrase, so I'll just say it like this, in the beginning, next phrase, was the word. John tells us that the Word was present in the beginning. The Word was there. Uh, the Greek word for was, uh, it's a Greek verb, emi, uh, denotes continuous action. This means that the Word was not only present in the beginning, but active, doing something, busy. Notice how Word is capitalized. Now, I'm one of the old school guys, and every time I write God's Word or whatever, I always capitalize it. But here, the capitalization, uh, we, we don't want to miss the capitalization because it actually means something. It's a very important detail, okay? Next phrase, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God. Not only was the Word present and active in the beginning, but the Word was with God. God was not alone when he created the heavens and the earth. He was accompanied by the Word. That's what it says, plainly. But more than that, the Word was active in the creation process. Emi, doing stuff, continuous action. Do you remember the mysterious comment God made when he created man? Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to the Word. He was speaking to the Word, capital W. And then you've got this next one that just is an artillery shot. And the Word was God. And I would say, and the Word is God. Not only was the Word present and active, and with God in the beginning, but the Word was God. So the Word is deity, is God. Who is the Word? Who is John referring to here? The Word is none other than Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And you must know that the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, was also present and active during creation, right? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, Genesis 1-2. The whole Trinity was involved in creating all things. Why did John, this is what comes to mind here, I'm thinking, what is going on here? Why does John call Christ the Word in this text? 
Well, the Gospels were written to particular audiences. Matthew was written to Jews, while Matthew and Luke were written to Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles. John, however, addressed both Jews and Greeks in his Gospel. In using the term word, he was using a term familiar to both Jews and Greeks, though each attributed a different meaning to the term. For the Greek mind, the word referred to the rational principle that supervised or governed the universe. To the Jew, word was a reference to God. Both groups, both sets of people reading this gospel or hearing this gospel and hearing these first couple of lines would have understood what John meant. They would have understood that he was referencing God. In particular, not the Father, but God. That's how they would have understood it. I'm not telling you that everyone who read it and heard it back then believed it. But I'm telling you that they understood the terminology that he used. Now let's just summarize what we have learned so far. Okay, The Word was present in the beginning. The Word was active in the beginning. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word was, and I say is God. The Word is Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity. So when we read, literally, when we read, when Christians read verse 1, we should be thinking, in the beginning was Christ, and Christ was with God, and Christ is God. Okay? So in a modern-day context with Christians today, in our vernacular, that's how we should read that. That's exactly what it means. However, the Arian, the Jehovah's Witness, the Mormon, and Arianism was an old, old heresy that kind of rebirthed not long ago. It actually has traces of it throughout all of church history. The Arian doesn't see it this way. Why? Because he or she automatically denies the deity of Christ. Well, he came from God, but he's not God. And so they do not interpret this passage rightly. In fact, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnessism, they've just changed the wording here to make it sound like Christ is not God. The word is not God. Now, John further drills his point home in verse 2. Okay, he's kind of building, and he really kind of you know, hits the nail on the head with this extra statement or just drives it home a little bit more. He wrote, he was in the beginning with God. Okay, it's kind of a summary of what he's already said. And this absolutely points to the eternality of the word of Christ. Eternality is a divine attribute. Only God is eternal. Only God. Eternal means, really, in its simplest form, no beginning and no end. No starting point, no ending point. That's what eternal means. Even our salvation, which is referred to as eternal life, is really more like everlasting life. Now, I'm not challenging Scripture, but our salvation has a starting point. And from that point on, you're saved. But according to God's plan and will, that was all foreordained in the past, and that's why it can be referenced as forever, because before time began, God chose. But really, our salvation has a starting point. But to be eternal means no starting point and no ending point. Creation is not eternal. And I know some scientists try to say that the universe has been around forever. It's eternal. It is not. It has a starting point. Even the Big Bang guys get that right. Boom, and it all came into existence. That's a starting point. But to say that it's always been here, not accurate. 
So creation is not eternal. God alone is eternal. No beginning and no end. And that's just something that I really can't get my mind around. The presence of Christ at the beginning, before creation. Literally, that's what it means. It means not just the point of creation when things were being created, but even prior to that. The, his presence at the beginning, even before creation began, before he started creating, shows that he is eternal as the Father is eternal. And that can mean only one thing. Christ is God. Christ is deity. In verse 3, John shows the activity of Christ in the beginning. Okay, so now he's going to start pointing to the activity. Remember that emi, that Greek verb, which means continuous action. Now he's going to show us an example of that continuous action. And this just affirms the deity of Christ even more so. Look at verse 3. And this is just astonishing. It says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1, and this is just mind-blowing, in Genesis 1, we see that God created the heavens and the earth, right? That is the creation account. That's what we see there. In John 1, 3, we see that God created the heavens and the earth through the word, through Christ. Ponder the implications. What exactly does that mean? Well, first of all, it very easily means that Christ is the Father's agent in creation. Now, now how did this play out in the beginning at the point of creation? How did it play out? Okay, I know it's speculative, maybe a little conjecture, but I, I, I'm, I'm a very, very investigative, curious person. So if all, everything came through Christ, what did it look like when it played out? Could it be that when the Father commanded, let there be light, Christ brought forth light? Could it be that when the Father commanded, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, Christ brought forth vegetation, plants, and fruit trees? Could it be that when the Father commanded, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind? Could it be that Christ brought forth the entire animal kingdom? Could it be that when the Father gave, or could it be that when the Father commanded, and this is probably my favorite, let us make man in our image after our likeness, Christ with his own hands formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature? Is that how it played out? Could it be that the Father gave the commands and Christ the Word, the agent in creation, used His divine power to carry out His commands and bring into existence the heavens and the earth? Could it be? It says all things were made through Him. What else can that mean? Well, somehow he was just this being and he was standing there and the Father was transferring energy through him and creating. And 
I don't, how do you spin this thing? I don't know if that's how it played out, but I know what happened. All things were made through him. All things, period. How it played out, I don't know. I'd like to think that the Father gave the commands, and the Son, who delights in obeying the Father, used his divine power to bring into existence the things that the Father commanded. What else can it mean? I don't know. Notice also the second half of verse 3, another very, very important detail. It says, without him, without the word, was not anything made that was made. Nothing came into existence apart from Christ. Nothing. Not one cell. Not one molecule. Not one distant star. Not one grain of of sand, not one drop of water. Incredible to ponder. It all came through him. Now, you've got to hear these other passages that say the same thing. You've got to hear them. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, He is, but I'll say Christ, because that's who the author is referring to. Christ is the image of of the invisible God. That is a bold and plain statement about his deity. He is the image of, you know, we're image bearers, but not in the same way that Christ is because he's actually deity. He is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is God. He was God in the flesh. He was the manifestation of God on earth in flesh. And it also says the firstborn, that means resurrected, of all creation. Listen to this, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And not only through him, but for him. Because he's the Lord of all. And it also says this, listen to the statement of eternality, verse 17. And he is before all things. He existed before any of these things came into existence. And in him, another insane little verse here, and in him all things hold together. Not only is Christ the divine contractor who created all things, all things came through him, but he keeps them held together. He sustained, not only did he create all life, he sustains all life, even the life of an unbeliever. All things hold together in the Word, in Christ. Amazing. How many of you have read Hebrews? Wow, amazing book. I think Paul wrote it, or maybe Barnabas. And I don't care if you disagree. It's hard to tell. Sometimes it sounds like Paul. Sometimes it sounds like somebody else. But Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Who's the Son? The Word. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's Lordship. Through whom he also created the world, there he is creating all things, all things coming through him. And it says this, 
Listen to this statement of his deity. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He's not close to who God is. He's exactly who God is because he is God. And listen to this. Again, this is like a reiteration of 17 of Colossians 1. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. How does Christ sustain all things? By the word of his power. Incredible. It's simply incredible. Just begin to wrap up. Maybe it went a little faster than I anticipated, but that's okay because I usually go long. And I did edit Cameron's sermon last week, and it was an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> Sorry. But I think Philbrin almost beat you the week before. Because he was at like, he was at 1010. You remember that, right? <laughs> I won't do it. I know. It's an inside joke between me and I. Let me just wrap this up. Again, a little more summary and maybe a little application. In the first three verses of his gospel, his gospel account, John affirmed the deity of Christ by taking us back to the beginning, to the point of creation, and showing how Christ was present, active, and with God. He even stated the deity of Christ directly at the end of verse 1. The word was God. The deity of Christ, my friends, is an irrefutable truth. It's an irrefutable truth. It is an immutable reality. Okay, whether we believe it or not, it doesn't change the truth and it doesn't change reality. It doesn't change the reality of who Christ is. And let me tell you, it's so important. The deity of Christ is essential to the gospel. In fact, it's not good news at all if he isn't God. It's not good news at all if he isn't man. If Christ is not the God-man, we are not saved. This is not something you can play fast and loose with. It's not up for debate. It's a closed-fisted doctrine, totally and overwhelmingly proclaimed and supported in Scripture, and I think it's downright offensive to refer to Christ in any other way, that He isn't God. Certainly more devastating than saying, you're not human, but I can't make myself any less human than I can make God not, Christ not God. He is who He is, and it's essential to the gospel. If He's not the God-man, then we are in a lot of trouble because man alone couldn't save us. He had to be the God-man. MacArthur hit the nail on the head with this statement. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. Just a simple statement of fact. I agree with him. Do you? A true Christian affirms the deity of Christ. A true Christian believes that Christ is God. He or she may not fully understand it or the hypostatic union. That's, you know, the fact that 
Christ is fully man and fully God. We, we may not be able to get our minds around that insanely incredible truth to the degree that we'd like to. We may not understand it all, how he's deity, how that plays out, how he's man. I understand that. But by faith, the true believer receives these truths, believes these truths, and rejoices in these truths. He doesn't go around tearing at them. She doesn't go around tearing at them. We, by faith, accept them. We, by faith, study them. We, by faith, seek to understand them as best we can. It's fascinating. That's what we do. That's right. That's what we do. Is that you? Have I described you? I certainly hope so. I'm working at it. But I believe that Christ is God. I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt that at all. It doesn't make me better than others. I just don't doubt it. I think that that doctrine is intrinsic to true saving. In fact, I think it comes in the DNA of it. That when a person is truly saved, they may not understand all of it at first, and over time they grow in their knowledge of it, but the truly saved person does not turn around and immediately reject the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ or anything with Christ that's clearly taught in Scripture. They just don't do it. Christ is God. He is God. He is God. Amen? Amen. Good.